Thank you so much, Miss Stacy. Well, welcome again. My name is Daniel. As we start this series on the book of Nahum, many of you were probably wondering, I didn't even know the book of Nahum was in the Bible, right? Where do you even find this thing? It's such a tiny book, and maybe many of us are just unfamiliar with it. And, uh, and so we're starting this book today. We'll go through for three weeks. We're kind of back in the minor prophets. Um, and then we'll go through the book of Habakkuk, which maybe another one was like, what? Did you have phlegm in your mouth? Um, uh, God bless you. And, um, and, and so as we're in these minor prophets, sometimes it's difficult, right? Sometimes it's difficult to understand the message of these prophets and understand this vengeance and all these sort of strange words. Um, but how many of you know that, man, all of Scripture is written and inspired by God. And as Christians, we need to be able to read the entire Bible, right? I know we love our verses on the mug, right? right? I know we love to go to the gym and see I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? You know, we love to get those encouraging verses. But, man, let's not be weak Christians who just look at parts of the Bible. We've got to have a love for the full counsel. So that's our aim here. The, the, the series is called Greater Comfort. Um, really because Nahum's name actually means comfort or consolation. Some scholars think that his name um, is short for Nehemiah, not the, the other Nehemiah, but, um, but it's a shortened version, and it would mean, which would mean God comforts. But Nahum's name means comfort. And the idea is that we will experience greater comfort in the midst of uh, sorrow, in the midst of uh, difficulties and trials and tribulations. So, so let me first start with this. And we have some kids in here. And we have some people who have kids. Um, how many of you are familiar with the deeply, deeply theological prayer we teach our kids before they eat? It goes something like this. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. By his hands we all are fed. Give us, Lord, our daily bread. Amen. All right. Uh, we have a preschool here with about 200 kids. That's kind of what they all will do before they eat their snack or their lunch, and they will, they will say that little prayer. And then, you know, you teach kids those prayers, you know, just so they can help learn some of these things. And, uh, and sometimes I don't think we realize how profoundly deep they really are. And so this idea that God is great and that God is good help us understand the character and the fullness of his character. See, because we don't want to worship a God that I made up, Right? I hope you don't want to worship that God because I might make up something crazy, right? I would worship the God that makes March Madness all year long, right? There would be no other important seasons, right? I mean, I would worship the God that serves peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in heaven every single day. And some of you would be like, that would be hell, Pastor. I cannot stand peanut butter and jelly. And me, I could eat peanut butter and jelly every single day. And so we're not here to worship a God that, that I made up, that somebody else made up. Uh, or that you craft in your own mind. We're here to worship God as he is for who he is. And we must understand him as he is. And so that's kind of the idea here. And sort of the big question that we're going to ask today that, that Nahum is, is helping us understand is, will evil be overcome? Will evil win out eventually? Will, will darkness persevere over light or will light win? Will goodness overcome wickedness? That's really the question that I think a lot of people wrestle with. And if you think about movies that we all like, right, that's typically the plot line is that, you know, 
the good guys win, that, that good conquers evil. We've been watching, re-watching Star Wars at my house, and, and my kids recently went to a Star Wars birthday party where they had all kinds of things that made me look like a, a chump for my Star Wars love. And they had Jedi juice, and they got laser pointers and had the kids jumping over things. They had to did a whole Jedi training course at this uh, birthday party, and I was like, man. I kind of stink as a parent, you know, I just had a cake and uh, said happy birthday, you know. But um, anyhow, the point I'm trying to make is this, is that my kids have been watching that and they're like, yeah, man, you know, Darth Vader's going down and 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 the emperor, he's bad and the good guys are going to win. They got the right lightsabers versus the red lightsabers. And, and that's really what we want to see. We want to see justice come. We want to see good conquer evil. But sometimes if we're honest, we wrestle like, is that really happening? We look at our world today, and when you look at headlines or, or things going on, it's like, man, is anything good going on? And and can I? And, and for those who who have kids and grandkids, can I think about? I'm sending my kid into this crazy world where I really don't know what's going to happen. And I think Nahum, God through Nahum, wants us to have a greater comfort than things we can provide for ourselves, and that our comfort ultimately comes from God. So to answer the question, will evil win? The answer is no. Evil was defeated over 2,000 years ago on the cross when Jesus destroyed all the work of the devil, all darkness, all that was evil was placed upon Jesus, and then he rose triumphantly from the grave. And so will evil win? The answer is no. And so let's learn a little bit about Nahum here as you're looking at the text. And uh, we, we got a couple of things here. We're just reminding us that God will restore justice. He will help the hurting, the weak. He will smash and conquer all evil. And, um, and so just a couple of uh, timeline things here um, is, is that this was time of the uh, it was it was time when Israel as a nation was being judged. It was about 600 years before Christ. And to reach over and touch your dare and tell them that was a long time ago. That was a long time ago. Now tell them, I don't think you were born then. Um, I don't think you were born then. All right, so about 600 years before Christ, there was this empire. And in fact, scholars would say this is the first empire before the Greeks, before the Romans, even before Genghis Khan and some of the Asian Chinese empires. The Assyrian Empire was this massive empire um, that because of actually what happens, what is prophesied in this book, because Nineveh is the capital city. Um, and, and this book prophesies that capital city is going to fall and that empire is going to fall before it happens, folks, before it happens. And there's going to be particulars and details that Nahum is going to tell us that happened before the events, which, again, are, are reminders, which are evidence of, of a God inspired, God written book. But but this evil and wicked empire just ruled the world, and, and they were famous for making gardens. They were way ahead of their time in the things they had. Nineveh was a city that had this humongous wall, probably about seven miles extending out from the city center, and it was high. And, it, and they thought, man, we we cannot be stopped. And as they conquered different groups of peoples all there through Turkey, um, and in fact, Nineveh, uh, which is the city this is directed at, is is in modern day Iraq, uh, which would actually probably be really close to Mosul. Iraq. And, um, and that's where this is taking place at about 600 years before Christ. And, um, and Assyria was invading God's people and invading many nations there. Um, and so there's a lot of things going on. They had already conquered the northern kingdom. And, um, and then they were just on the heels of conquering all kinds of other nations. And so Nahum's people were beaten down. Nahum's people were constantly attacked and under the rule. They had some kings. And um, but but man, the, the kings of Assyria were, were just destroying things and they were a, a, a really harsh nation. Uh, they were famous for um, 
taking the heads of their enemies and putting them on poles and bringing them back to the city and just lining the city streets with the heads of their captured uh, villages and cities they would go to. They were famous for filleting their enemies, meaning skinning them alive. These were cruel and wicked people. And uh, you may be thinking, wait a, wait a second, Nineveh, I've heard that name before. Yeah, you heard that name, right? God sent a prophet to that city before, the book of Jonah. This was, uh, Jonah came about a hundred years. We're for Jonah, like the big, big fish and all that sort of stuff. God sent Jonah to receive forgiveness, to give and offer forgiveness to these wicked people. And this is about a hundred to maybe 150 years later. Now God has bringing justice. They, they turned. There was a great revival in Nineveh, but they had forgotten about what had happened. And so this is kind of the history that we find ourselves in. And so we got to have the full counsel in the small book. It's just three chapters. And so we're going to navigate here. But the, the major thing we're going to learn about is the character of God. And so I'm going to give you, uh, if you, if you track through the text with me, you'll see it says frequently, the Lord, the Lord, the Lord. This is speaking to God's character. And so even though it's kind of a difficult book to understand, it's showing us who he is. And so point number one, you can go ahead and write this down, is this. What it's going to show us about the character of God, it's going to show us the purity of God, the purity of God. God is pure and righteous. He is good. It's going to show his justice, his holiness. And, and, and when wrong happens, God takes notice. This is a big deal. The purity of God. And so let's just track through the text here together. Point, uh, verse number one, we're going to see the holiness, the purity of God, the righteousness of God. Uh, just track with me back through the text. Verse number one, it says this, an oracle concerning Nineveh. The word oracle there um, is, is like a poetic prophecy. Um, uh, and actually in Hebrew, it means a burden. And so Nahum is carrying this burden uh, and, and his, his predecessor, Jonah, didn't have a burden. Jonah had good news to take to Nineveh. Uh, here, there is a burden that he has to uh, send to Nineveh. And, uh, and so an oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. Now notice there that it also says the book. This is an interesting thing that we have uh, that you don't often see as part of what makes Nahum unique is that he actually wrote this down where most of the prophetic messages were spoken and then were later written by scribes. Uh, Nahum actually wrote his down according to what we see here. Then it says this, look at the purity of God. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps his wrath for his enemies. I know what you're thinking. Pastor, you have watched too much Star Wars, and I think uh, you got a lightsaber that mixed up your brain. Because when I see words like jealous and avenging and wrathful and vengeance, I don't think of purity and goodness and holiness and righteousness. That's not what we typically think of. But let me remind you that love and goodness must, if it's going to be true love, must have wrath, must take vengeance, and must demand justice when wickedness happens. If someone comes into my house with a weapon, to steal or injure or do something even more vile to my children and my wife. Am I wrong to display and ask for justice for that person? I'm just going to let it happen to be like, God bless you, sir. Thank you for coming in and slaughtering my family. True love, true love demands that justice happens when there is wrongdoing. 
And God's vengeance and God's jealousy is not like ours. Now, I know this can be a difficult subject to sort of talk about. In fact, um, as I read just some articles this week and praying, this, this idea of God being jealous is what has turned many people away from, uh, from the Christian faith. Uh, many people said, I, I heard my pastor preaching about the jealousy of God, and I was like, nope, I don't believe that. And uh, many people have walked away uh, because they, they, they were just like, our idea of jealousy is, is wrong. But I'm here to remind you that the jealousy in which we speak of here is, is not human jealousy. And it's not like the, the ancient uh, Greek and Roman gods that were like a soap opera in the sky, right? You know, like this person fights against this person. I steal his wife and then I have a kid. I know we send a kid to earth and he becomes like Thor or Icarus or something like that, you know, and like we can't get along like some crazy nonsense like this. This is a God who is pure and righteous. I love what Millard Erickson, the theologian, says when he talks about the purity of God. He says this. He says, we are referring to God's absolute freedom from anything wicked or evil. Listen to me now. Absolute freedom from anything wicked or evil that is not in God. Purity and goodness are his character. This means he is untouched and unstained by the evil in the world. He does not in any sense participate in it. God not only is personally free from any moral wickedness or evil in his own character, but he is unable to tolerate its presence. He is, as it were, allergic to sin and evil. And I would add, he must bring justice and punishment when sin and evil happen, which requires that a loving God must have wrath when wickedness is, is, is perpetrated. There must be accountability. And so, um, in fact, we'll study in a few weeks, Habakkuk uh, chapter 1 verse 13 says this about God. It says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. In the New Testament, James 1.13 says this, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Sometimes we do that, right? But it says this, for God cannot be tempted with evil. And he himself Tempts no one. And so we talk about the character and the purity of God. We've got to remember who he is and that he is absolutely pure. And his wrath or his jealousy is righteous and good and just right because he alone knows people's hearts and what is the right thing to do in those situations. I don't know your heart. You don't know my heart. We make judgments about people all the time, right? I say this frequently, right? We're mad at somebody. We're mad at our best friend. We're mad at a, at a sister or a brother or a church member because you were walking in the food line and, um, and you waved to them and said, hey, and they just walked right on past you. And you thought, oh, the attitude they got. I know. I know. Okay. And we make all kinds of judgments and we play the story in our minds. like I know, and, then we, and then it gets worse, right? It blows up into something like, I knew they hated me since the second grade. And then every little thing you they, they, they missed, they didn't send me a birthday card three years ago, and they didn't like my Facebook post. And like we just build this story in our minds. The reality is they didn't have their contacts in, man. Like they were in there in their PJs just trying to get a, a loaf of bread to feed their kids. They were trying to get in and out and hope nobody noticed them, didn't have any makeup on. They couldn't even see you, right? And so, but God is not like us. He can see into our hearts, and he knows when the right time for wrath is, and he alone is the one that can carry that out. We are not called to take out wrath and vengeance, but God, the perfect and holy God, is the one who can do that. So how about this for a little picture? Since this was in the news much uh, the past several weeks, and will be in the news probably today as people watch the Super Bowl. And uh, last week, I confessed to you, I didn't even know who was in the Super Bowl. So um, I appreciate some of you still returning and coming back this week. 
Uh, but if if and and I did pay attention to this because I saw the headlines about it. But this was the Rams versus the Saints game, and this was a uh, a pass interference play that happened in that game that the referee missed. And everybody has been saying, man, the Rams shouldn't be in the Super Bowl because what happened? The ref missed the call, and people are outraged. You know what they're saying? There is somebody who should be paying attention. When wrong is done, they should blow the whistle. And nobody's offended by that. We're banking on the fact that the referee is going to see that. And, and then please, somebody change the rules. And if else, we can go back and video these types of plays. Like people are losing their minds because they're saying wrong was perpetrated. And righteousness should win. And so everybody in our hearts, you demand righteousness all the time, right? Somebody cuts you off on the freeway, you're demanding righteousness with one finger as you wave at them. Right? We all demand righteousness. And then sometimes when we talk about God, it's like, oh, God is going to keep righteousness and going to bring vengeance. We're like, oh, I don't know if I like a God like that. I don't know if that's, I like the loving God. Listen, a loving God must carry out justice and, 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 and make evil pay. In order for him to be truly loving. And so his character there. And so look, look at the words here, jealous. Uh, in fact, the Bible talks about this frequently in Exodus uh, 14. God says his name is jealous. And we're thinking, ooh, man, I just don't know if I like that. But listen, again, it is not like human jealousy. It is right and good for God to be jealous of his people and of his glory. Let me see if I can put it this way for you. Let's, let's try it this way. Is it wrong? Would it be wrong for, and this is a human illustration, so it'll break down on some level. Would it be wrong for my wife to be jealous of me and to expect me to have eyes only for her? Whatever you disagree with that, if I just start, you know, just checking out all the other women and be like, you know, you would all say that is wrong. You made vows to your wife. And yeah, it would be right for her. I'm not talking about creepy, like you can't go anywhere. I'm checking your phone type, you know, disgusting, controlling jealousy of, of crazy people. Okay. I'm talking about a pure and righteous. I made a covenant to her. And all of a sudden, some other woman tries to lure me away and I start going, going out with some other woman. It would be right for my wife to feel you made a covenant to me. It'd be right for her heart to be broken. Somebody, uh, actually it was uh, John Piper, uh, put it this way. He, and, and because, again, that on some level breaks down. He said, instead of just a husband and wife, imagine this, that God is like a king, a powerful and merciful king. Who then finds this peasant girl who has been in slavery and poverty and marries this peasant girl. And he rescues her from a life of shame. He forgives her. He rescues her from a life of slavery. And then he marries her. And he gives her not the chores of a slave, but he gives this peasant girl the privileges of a wife, the privileges of a queen. If he were to be jealous, if, if she were to cheat on him or, or break her covenant, if someone else were to lure her, his jealousy does not rise from fear or weakness or need. God doesn't have a need of us, but his jealousy would arise from a holy and righteous indignation of having his honor and his power and mercy scorned by the faithlessness of someone else. And so the scripture is right to say we're, we have wedding vows we've made to God. And, and when we destroy those wedding vows and we love other things more than we love him, it dishonors his great name. God doesn't need us. 
but it brings reproach upon his name. Maybe I could give you another illustration like this. We were meant to be tethered to God. So if you will, just picture um, a, 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 uh, an astronaut, right? An astronaut, and he's got to go to work on the space station, right? And, um, and in, that, in order to work on the space, he's got to be tethered to the space station, right? So he doesn't fly away into space, right? And so he's got some oxygen. That's his lifeline. You and I were created. Listen to me now. Stay with me. We were created to be tethered to God. You were created to be tethered to God. And when sin comes in and untethers us and God gets rightfully jealous and rightfully wrathful, because what happens? So let me put it this way. Take that astronaut, right? And he's out there fixing the the space station. He's just banging away on something. And then a little, and he's tethered. He's tethered to the space station, his lifeline. He's, that's where he's got to stay connected. And let's say a little green Martian comes out there because Martians have to be green. And um, a little green Martian comes out there, and he starts to get where he is tethered to the space station. And he starts to try to rip it off. And the captain of the Space Command Center, Captain Kirk, says, man, this is not right. And he begins to get jealous and wrathful at the alien. Is that wrong? No, because he's motivated by love. If that astronaut gets untethered, what's going to happen to him? He's going to die. And so God's jealousy and his wrath is not selfish like we as humans do selfishness. It is, it is motivated by a pure and righteous God who does all things right and out of love. And so when we become untethered by sin, it is right and good for God to become wrathful. And so again, look at the words there. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This is a good reminder here. And then go with me to the third verse. It says this, but the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And so when God distributes his wrath and brings justice. He is not doing it like I do it, right? Which is typically I'm reacting to someone else's wounding of me. God is slow. May I, may I remind you that God sent a prophet to lovingly ask for the city of Nineveh over 100 years ago to repent, and they did repent, and there was a huge celebration, and the whole city was spared. And so God is not unloving, but he is patient with them. He is patient with me. He is patient with you. Amen? He is slow to anger. He has patience, but his patience does have a limit. And God and God alone knows what that limit is. And this is a reminder for us as believers. We are not to take vengeance because we are not God. In fact, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, God instructs us. He's beloved. Never avenge yourselves. Never. How often? Never. And it's funny. We kind of put God on the hot seat like, oh, I don't know if I like a God that's taking vengeance. But you've let yourself get off the hook for all kinds of vengeance you've had, right? You've been angry at a co-worker. You've been angry at a sister, a brother, a spouse, a child. We take vengeance all the time. And it's like we want to brush ours off real quick. And now we put God like, like God is on trial when he has never done anything wicked, nor could he. It says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but what? But leave it to the wrath of God. Why should we not take vengeance? Because God is the righteous one, and he's the only one that knows that person's heart. If, if I take vengeance, man, I, I'll be too harsh, or, or I'll be too soft. But God alone knows them and knows exactly what's best for that person. So we are not to take vengeance on bullies at school or upon coworkers or spouses. And 
You know, they get mad at me. I'm going to get mad at them. You, you didn't make your bed. I won't make my bed. Either. I won't cook you breakfast. Right. You know, we do all kinds of little things like that. Those are acts of vengeance. I'm getting back at you because you disturbed me. And then it says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says who? The Lord, not us. And so we are not to show vengeance. We are to entrust that God will do what is right and bring justice. And so we see here, God is slow to anger. Great, look at the rest of the verse there. Great, in verse 3, great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Point number two, you can write this down as this. So we see not only the purity of God, but we see the power of God demonstrated here in these verses. We see the power of God. We see the power of God. I'm grateful about this. God is not just a referee who blows a whistle. You're out of bounds, sir. You know, passion of parents. God is not just the referee, but he is the biggest, baddest player on the field. And imagine if some of these players get all up in the, in the referee's face. You know, referee's a little dude and, you know, just 300, 400 pound lineman just sweating and spitting in his face. Right. But imagine that ref just grabbing him by the face mask. Man, get out of my face. Like you can't even step to me. So so not only is, is God calling the shots, but he has the power to defeat all evil and wickedness. It can't overcome his goodness. So he's not just calling the shots, but he's calling the shots with power. Again, as, as we saw in verse 3, he is, he is great in power. But look uh, at the, the second part of verse 3. His way, his way is in the whirlwind and the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Right? When a humongous storm comes, that's just like dust on God's feet. Look at what the rest of the verse says. He rebukes the sea. I don't know about you, but I would like to rebuke the sea sometime. That would be kind of cool. Jesus did it during the storm, right? He rebuked the storm and he said, peace. Be still and the whole thing just calm like that. I'm thankful we serve a God who is powerful. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up the rivers of Bashan and Carmel. Bashan and Carmel were, were areas that were very lush and fertile. And God is saying, I can turn that off like a faucet if I wanted to. Just And that area is done with. He is a powerful God in the same way that fire is powerful, right? But fire can warm you and be an encouragement to you, right? When you respect it the right way, but you start playing with fire and getting it inappropriately, you will get burned. God is powerful. Look at the next verse, verse five, the mountains quake before him, the mountains, Mount Everest. Okay. I mean, all these mountains, these high and amazing places, and they quake before the presence of God and the hills melt like butter on a frying pan. I just added that part in there. Okay. And the earth heaves, the whole earth, it heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Man. And then in verse 6 says this. Who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? As I was thinking about this, again, I'm glad that, that, that God is not just tender, loving Jesus and patient God, but he's also tough enough to handle the evil. And I don't know if you realize this, but sometimes as Americans, listen to me now, we're so comfortable and we're so removed from the vast evil that exists in this world. We struggle then. That's the reason why we struggle with Nahum. And I have news for you. Can I can I just be honest with you? Nahum chapter one is the easiest chapter. So come back the next two weeks. It'll be really encouraging and bring a friend and say, look, come watch my pastor struggle through this difficult minor problem. Man, this guy's sweating up there. Man, it's hard, man. Just we can kind of watch him, you know, to struggle with this. It'll be great fun. And. Um, but we want the full counsel of God. Right. 
and, uh, and not weak, anemic Christians, but Christians who have a deep enough theology, a true enough picture of the character of God, that he will not stand for evil or injustice. But our brothers and sisters throughout the world face evil and injustice. As, as we celebrate uh, here in America Black History Month, uh, I, was, I was reminded, uh, as I read an article earlier uh, this year, about the guy who won the Nobel Peace Prize um, from the, uh, his name is Dr. Dennis Mukwege. And um, he won the Nobel Peace Prize as he fights uh, in the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, against uh, sex trafficking and, and people who have been abused in war. And, uh, and he gave a speech, and I would encourage you to, to watch that speech. It's in a different language, but there's, you know, you can read it at the bottom. My wife was like, what are you listening to? And, um, but it was a powerful speech and just a reminder of what people face in our world that sometimes we as Americans we don't understand the longing for justice that many people on the earth long for justice because there are wicked and evil dictators. But this is what he said. He said this. He said, uh, this was in 19, said, in the tragic night of October 6, 1996, rebels attacked our hospital in Lemera in the Democratic Republic of Congo. More than 30 people were killed. Patients were slaughtered in their beds, point blank. Unable to flee, the staff were killed in cold blood at a hospital, folks. But then he said this. He said, I could not have imagined that that was only the beginning. That was only the beginning. That horrific day was only the beginning. Forced to leave Lemura in 1999, we set up the Pansy Hospital in Bukava, where I still work as an OBGYN today. The first patient admitted was a rape victim who had been shot in their genitals. The ghastly violence knew no limit, and sadly, this violence never stopped. One day, like any other day, the hospital received a call. At the other end of the line, a colleague in tears implored us, please send an ambulance fast. Please hurry. So we sent an ambulance, as we normally do. Two hours later, the ambulance returned. Inside was an 18-month-old girl. She was bleeding profusely and was immediately taken into the operating room. When I arrived, the nurses were sobbing. The baby's bladder, genitals, and rectum were severely injured by an adult in their sadistic ways. We prayed in silence. My God, tell us what we are seeing isn't true. Tell us, God, it's a bad dream. Tell us that when we wake up, everything will be all right. But it was not a bad dream. It was reality. And it had become the new reality of our country, the DRC. When another baby arrived, when another baby, folks, I realized that the problem could not be solved in the operating room alone, but we had to combat the root causes of these atrocities. I decided travel, to travel to the village of Kuvamu to talk to these men, and I said to them, why don't you protect your babies? Why don't you protect your daughters? Why don't you protect your wives, and where are the authorities? To my surprise, the villagers actually knew who the suspect was, but everyone was afraid of him. Since he was a member of the parliament, he enjoyed absolute power over the population. Where is justice? We are asking, and people all across the globe face injustices and tragedies like this every single day. And do we want a God who is wrathful and takes vengeance and will hold every single act of wickedness accountable? Yes, sir. You had better when you face the realities of these situations. He goes on to say this. The deputy got away with no consequences. His parliamentary immunity enabled him to abuse without any impunity. Two babies were followed by several dozens of other raped children. 
When the 48th victim arrived, we were desperate. We need a Savior, folks. And we need a Savior who is not just Jesus, tender, meek, and mild, but Jesus who, who is the most loving and in his love will carry out his appropriate good and justice and his wrath upon all evil and wickedness and who can stamp out every act of evil that ever occurs. He goes on to beg for help. He says this, with this Nobel Peace Prize, I call upon the world to be a witness. I urge you to join us and to put an end to the suffering that shames our common humanity. The people of my country need desperate peace. Do you hear that? He says this, but how to build peace on mass graves? How to build peace without truth nor reconciliation? How to build peace without justice or reparation? You can't have one without the other. And God himself and God alone is the rightful one. And we can have comfort knowing that God will call every single person to account for the wickedness that is done. And none of it has escaped his eye and none of it will escape his good and just punishment. Who can and look at verse six with me? Verse six says this. Who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? This man in the Democratic Republic of Congo? No, they will not be able to stand before God. His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him or smashed into pieces by him. Our God is powerful, and that should bring us great comfort because the atrocities of the world will not have the last victory. And I know perhaps many of you are shocked, and I hated to even read that to you, but we do ourselves a disservice sometimes as we sit so comfortably by in our, in our uh, safe neighborhoods and homes and houses while, while billions of people live underneath this kind of threat every day. Many of them understand the justice and wrath of God very well. And they celebrate and they worship the justice and the wrath of God because they realize what that means for us. Thirdly, and, and this will be finally, and we'll uh, wrap up with this one, is this. We see the presence of God. We see the presence of God. So we have the purity of God, the power of God, and we see the presence of God. We see that God's presence to be with his people in the midst of suffering the people who were hearing this message, the Israelites, they were under the suffering of the Assyrians. And there was nothing they could do to win. And they watched their countrymen be taken away. They watched their wives and children be slaughtered and, and abused in horrific ways. They watched all these things happen. They watched people be skinned alive. They watched this stuff. And they were crying out, God, are you there? God, do you see this? God, will you answer? Will you do something about this? And God has said, yes, I, I have and I will. And then he says, and I'm with you. Look with me at verses 7 through 11. He says this. I know some of you were waiting for this verse. The Lord is good. Oh, I feel like I can catch a breath, right? The Lord is good. He is great. And he is good. Notice what it says here. A stronghold in the day of trouble. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And then it says this. He knows, he knows those who take refuge in him. Man, isn't that encouraging? The Lord is good, a stronghold in the days of trouble, and he knows those who take refuge in him. In other words, man, God is like a consuming fire, but he's also like a warm fire. And when I'm in the appropriate place, I get warmed by the fire. I don't have to worry about getting burned by it. And so, man, we see this truth that his presence comes to meet us and he knows intimately those who take refuge in him. And when you take refuge in him, you come under his safety, you come under his protection and the evil one can't touch you. And wickedness 
And demonic forces cannot stand against you because he knows those who take their refuge in him. And then in verse 8, we're right back. Verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make a complete end of his adversaries. By the way, just a side note, uh, as we think about this, the city of Nineveh, which uh, was destroyed uh, later by the Babylonian uh, armies, and um, what happened was that mighty wall that they built, that great and strong wall seven miles out, um, the rivers uh, where, where they're at had flooded like they had never flooded before, knocked out about a two-mile section. And, um, and the emperor of Assyria took that as a sign because he had heard some prophetic words. Because uh, the, uh, the Assyrians were the first to have libraries, and they had these gardens, they had zoos. I mean, they were a modern civilization uh, on some levels. Okay? But, but the emperor heard some ancient prophecies about a flood would come, and that would be the end of their reign. And so you know what the emperor did? When the flood came, he took all the people inside the palace and he lit the palace on fire. And he just sort of gave up because he saw that flood and he took that as a sign from the gods as he understood it. And so, again, we see Nahum writing about this actual event long before it happens. And so we see an overwhelming flood will make a complete end of the adversaries. I don't know about you, but I'm glad my adversary, the devil, will have a complete end. And his wickedness and the things he does to people on earth and the destruction that he brings in your life and my life through death, through disease, through the wickedness that is perpetrated on all sorts of levels in our own nation and in nations all around the globe will come to a complete end. And it says this, he will pursue his enemies into darkness. Verse 9, what, what, what do you plot against the Lord? You can't plot against him. You can't, you can't take him out. And then notice what it says again. He will make a what? complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. I kind of thought about this. You know, I like to watch a bunch of movies, but you know how like the end of the movie comes and everybody's walking in and hands are celebrating. They're like, yeah. And then as they walk off in the sunset, then the camera turns back. And then like in the Terminator movies, right from the rubble rises that like metallic hand. Like, and uh, it's like, he's going to come back. There's going to be Terminator part two or three or five billion, whatever it is, you know? And, uh, and it's like, Nope. When God is done, he's going to make a complete end. The enemy, the devil, the accuser of Christians and and the one who wants to destroy every human soul will have a complete end and he will not rise again. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. He will be done with. It will be over and God will have fully conquered all things. I don't know about you, but I'm excited about that. Make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. As I thought about just some of the brutal things that have happened in our time, I thought about Ted Bundy, the serial killer who killed over 50 people, Saddam Hussein, and his ethnic cleansing of the Kurds in Iraq, Jeffrey Dahmer chopping up victims, one million Tutsis in Rwanda in the 1990s, one million folks, one million brutally and killed in cold blood, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, Paul Pot, and the killing fields of Cambodia responsible for at least a million Cambodia's lives. Cambodian lives. Timothy McVeigh, 168 victims in the bombing, including 19 children. Joseph Kony in Uganda and Sudan and the Children's Army. Joseph Stalin, who starved, starved, ladies and gentlemen, at least 4 million Ukrainians. And of course, we can think about the Holocaust. We can think about all these things. And God is saying it will not come to an end. It, it will come to an end. Excuse me. It will not rise again. It will come to a complete end. 
Verse 10, for they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed. Notice they are consumed like stubble. This is like the little stuff you get to get the fire started, fully dried. From you, and this is a, a word to the Assyrians and maybe even a, a pointing towards demonic uh, inferences there. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Then verse 12 says, thus does the Lord, though they are full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. And he says this, he says this to his people in the second part of verse 12. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. But I will break his yoke from off of you and I will burst your bonds apart. And that is really what God is getting at here is that there are demonic principalities and there are forces of wickedness. And God will break those chains and will bring freedom to his people because we were made to be tethered to him. And as we come and we're going to celebrate the Lord's table today. And I can really think of, of no more fitting way really to celebrate the Lord's table as we think about it, right? Because when you think about it, the justice and the wrath of God and the love of God coexist in beautiful ways. How did God demonstrate his love and his justice? God demonstrated his love by sending Jesus to die in our place. Because do you know what the truth is? We can talk about wicked people in other countries. We can talk about wicked people in our own country. We can talk about wicked people in our own state, right, all over the news. And, and uh, you know, people are just going crazy about our own governor and that sort of stuff. And we love to talk about the wickedness of other people. You know, the truth of the matter is we're all Ninevites. We're all Ninevites. And God in his righteousness and his love and justice is, is calling each of us to be more concerned with our own lives than we are looking at somebody else. And so how does the love of God and the justice of God meet with you? Well, it met with Jesus on the cross and God poured out his justice. And Jesus, listen to me now, stay with me. Jesus took the punishment that I deserved. He took the punishment you deserved. He took the punishment that Timothy McVeigh and Joseph Coney and every other person of wickedness has ever deserved. Jesus took all the wrath of God for us so that we could experience the love of God. And as we come to the Lord's table, we're celebrating his body. Changed places for us. His blood was shed for us. And so as we come, it's a celebration that we have a greater comfort. We have a greater comfort that when all this wickedness happens, when all the evil happens, God still wins. Good will reign and evil will be totally vanquished. And we can take comfort in that. We don't have to worry about the comfort of this world, but we can take comfort that our King Jesus is coming again. He's made a promise. And just like he promised through Nahum that Nineveh would fall, Nineveh fell. In fact, archaeologists didn't even find it for almost a thousand years later. They didn't even know Nineveh existed. They, they used to make fun of the Bible. There's a city called Nineveh. Nobody ever heard of that. So they do an archaeological dig and find all this stuff to be true. And it's like, oh, my bad. Sorry about that. And um, they'll find something else to pick about in the Bible. But I'm going to ask the man to come make the Lord's table ready. And uh, as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. And if you're here joining us and you are uh, from another church, you're visiting us, and, but you're a Christian, you're a follower of Christ, you're welcome to celebrate the Lord's table with us. Uh, please come join us. We'd invite you, even if you're not a member here. However, if you're not a Christian, you're, you're not a believer, you're not a follower of Christ, you don't know for sure that you have given your heart to him and, and, and he is yours and you are his, I'm going to ask that you let the, the plate pass from you. You say, why is that, Pastor? Because, listen, we have a greater comfort. There is something greater we can offer you, which is the true bread of life, the, a relationship with Jesus Christ. And, and, uh, and after this, we'll help you uh, know how you can begin that relationship and, and get that started. But, but the, 
the Lord's Supper is for believers, and it's that reminder. Nobody's going to look at you or, or look at you strange if you love to play Pastor Newsom. Don't worry about that. And um, but let us help you get the true bread of life, and um, and 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 give you a greater comfort. This is a reminder. It's a symbolic. There's there's no spiritual cleansing that happens from the Lord's Supper, from these crackers and this juice. There's there's no uh, magic in it, but it's a reminder for all of us. Man, I have I have done evil. And I could not stand before the wrath of God. And God is saying, I will not afflict you anymore. He's saying, man, I will break the chains off you. And it's a celebration of that. So if you'll pray with me, and then we'll serve the Lord's Supper together. Father, thank you. And Lord, sometimes it is. It's a hard message. Especially in our modern sensibilities. Sometimes, Lord, we think we know so much. And then we're faced with the reality of, of evil and wickedness in our world. And so even in these moments, we can worship you and say, thank you, God, for conquering evil. Thank you for getting rid of wickedness. And thank you, the Lord, though you have called us to be on mission with you, and that mission is to love others, and we do need to speak out against injustice. We are never to take vengeance in our own hands. We are to leave room for your wrath because you're the only one righteous and perfect. We're not. So forgive us, Lord, when we've taken vengeance. Forgiveness when when we've taken vengeance in our hearts. Even now, before we take the Lord's Supper, it's a good opportunity for us to sit quietly. And to say, Lord, search me and try me. See if there's any wicked way within me, God. Before I celebrate what you did for me, God, let me confess how I have defamed your name. So just take a few moments to sit before God and have a conversation with him and confess. But then receive his love for you. Hear him say to you, I will break the chains off of you. Hear him say, I will not afflict you anymore. Hear him say I am your refuge, and I know you. Father, thank you for the, your death on the cross and for what that did to conquer all the forces of evil, that we could live our days, we could live our days saying, it is well with my soul because I know that you have conquered evil. You have conquered death. All the forces of hell could not separate us from your great love. They can't separate our children from your great love, our grandchildren, Lord. And we can live in this world, not with fear, but with confidence that our God is indeed king. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.